My name is David Hershkovitz. I'm the founder of Paper Magazine, and this is Light Culture. Listen, learn, and stay ahead of the curve as I knock heads with cultural disruptors of the past, present, and future. Light Culture is brought to you by Burb, the Vancouver-based cannabis brand. Over this year of the pandemic, I've been expanding my musical horizons, knowing that sometimes you have to dig deeper than what's readily available to find something you truly love. I've been a fan of KEXP, the listener-supported radio station out of Seattle, for a while, but recently I got hooked on Positive Vibrations with Kid Hops, a weekly program dedicated to reggae. I've been a big fan of reggae and its dub ska and dancehall antecedents, but what I heard was something new. That's where I first encountered the music of Leela Ike, my guest today. Initially, it was the voice that grabbed me, sweet but not innocent, smooth but expressive. Then came the lyrics, personal yet universal, real and inspirational. Then, of course, came the soul, a sense that here was someone talking to you who was wise beyond her years. Fusing contemporary reggae with elements of soul, hip-hop, and dancehall, I'd found a new contemporary sound that moved me, body and soul, emotionally as well as musically. Continuing my investigation, I realized that Leela was not alone as a woman in the notoriously male-dominated world of reggae that there are other women coming up and that we have perhaps arrived at a reggae revival moment, a time for reggae to reinvent itself, to once again become a force for inclusivity, carving out a lane for women in the global dialogue for social justice. Her debut EP, The Experience, is out now, and her first full-length album is expected soon. So welcome, Leela Ike. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Thanks for saying all of those really nice stuff. I appreciate it. <laughs> well, you know, it's it's easy to do when it's when you're telling the truth sometimes, right? <laughs> yeah. So let's start with the voice. I mean, when did you realize that you had a voice? Uh, did you sing around the house? Or was this something that was a family thing as well? Um, yeah, I would definitely be singing around the house. My mom is really into music, so she's the one that would be playing all the records and she'd often ask us to sing along. My other sisters, I have three other sisters, they wouldn't necessarily always be into the music that my mom was playing. She loves really old reggae music, you know. They were more into pop, so I'd be the one that's there singing with her. And I guess that's around the age of like five or six. And as I got older, I realized, you know, I'm really into this music. So I started doing my own research and continued singing. So you were, had it in mind at some point in those years when you were still living at home that you wanted to be a singer and write songs and, and be an artist? You know, it was kind of like a childish fantasy, to be honest. When I really felt I would like to be an artist, I remember watching Michael Jackson perform. And I don't know what it is about Michael, but you just see him and just, wow, you know, that must be really cool to be able to be on stage. And so many people are just so into his music and it was just something to see. 
I didn't necessarily make up my mind then that, okay, this is what I really want to do with my life. But I thought about it and thought, you know, this would be cool if I was like a superstar. <laughs> <laughs> it had to be a superstar, right? Yeah, for sure. So as I dug deeper into this new music that was coming up that was interesting to me that I wanted to learn more about, I found out about this Indignation Collective company of Grammy-nominated reggae star protege, where you were more or less became one of his singers. He signed you to the independent label, a management company, and he also has these other artists that I really like too. So it was amazing that not only did I find out you were there, but also Savannah and Jazz Elise as well are part of this whole collective group. So what's going on over there? Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, it's a really special um, team to be a part of. I met Protégé when I moved from my hometown in Christiana almost six or seven years now. It was the time when I had my, my most freedom. Like I could do whatever I want to do. I could go anywhere. Because while I was living with my mom, I didn't have access to much. And back in the country, there wasn't a lot of platforms to sing and perform at, if, even if I was allowed to go. So I moved to Kingston after like two and a half years of university in order to do a job because I had to stop going to school. While living here, that's when I started meeting a bunch of other creatives and they start bringing me to different spaces. At the time, however, my really good friend from high school was already working with Protégé. She was an intern for him. And, you know, she'd always be telling me, yo, you need to listen to his music. I was still pretty much into just old reggae music. I haven't discovered Janine or Chronics or any of them yet. And I actually started listening and I was like, you know, this is really cool music. So I moved here. She invited me to his album launch that he was having for Ancient Future. I met him there. We had a really brief conversation with me saying, hopefully one day, you know, you can hear my music. I think a year and a half later, he reached out to me on social media to say, you know, he did in fact hear something and heard about me performing at different jam sessions and everybody's saying, you know, this girl is really talented. And so he'd love to meet up and discuss what it is my plans were as it relates to my career. And so I connected with him one evening at his home studio. And that's actually when I wrote my first two singles. So that's how that link with Protégé came about. And I had heard Savannah's music before. I actually heard a cover that she did of Amy Winehouse and thought it was so cool. Eventually, I got signed to the label and we recently signed another singer called Jazzelise. And it's just a really comfortable space to create from. Protégé is very chill, very laid back. He encouraged us to just do our own thing, you know, rock to our own melody. There's no rules and regulation. He's just there to guide us with his wealth of knowledge being in the music industry so long and being there when reggae music began to take a turn where a lot of young people were getting involved in the sounds and, and all of that with different influences such as rap and R&B and everything. It's just a really good person to have as a guiding light through all of this. And then also having other millennials, you know, my girls, to talk about different stuff, different struggles that we as women will face and face in the industry. It's, it's a really comfortable space to work from. 
It was great that you were able to find a place like that. A year and a half, you said you waited. That's a lot of time in some people's lives, isn't it? It's like you have to be pretty aged. Weren't you like, oh my God, sign me? You didn't try to make the connection. Were you singing on the side while this year and a half was going on? Yeah, what it was is that I was so busy doing a lot of stuff while I was here. Music wasn't initially my central, like my main focus because I was working. I was going back to school. My main thing was I need to finish this degree. I told my mom I was going to move out and get a job and get this school thing done. That's what I was really focused on. Music was the part of me that I really couldn't ignore. If wherever it is that there's a jam session, after work, I'm leaving, I'm going and I just don't like pressuring people or like being too upfront. I'd much rather let the work speak, which is exactly what happened. You know, I'm pretty sure after just inviting me to studio a couple of times, which is a conversation I've had with him since me being signed and us becoming really good friends. He's like, one of the main things that I respected about you was that even though you know, I was linking you and you had access to me. You weren't immediately ready to just stop everything that you were doing and say, hey, protege seems interested in me and my craft. You were still going to work. You were still going to school. The first time me and him ever did anything together musically, he has a song called Flight Plans. And I actually recorded my part of that song because he had invited me to studio to come and do some ad-libs. It was a very hectic time for me with school. I had a lot of deadlines that I had to meet. So while at the studio, I was doing an assignment and I fell asleep. So he woke me up to do my part because I had to wait until he was he was working on a whole project, his royalty free project. And so I had to wait until he went through, you know, what he was doing with the songs. I took the time to kind of finish up my work and I fell asleep. And I remember him waking me up to say, hey, you're still going to do the, the ad libs for me. Are you still going to do the ad libs for me? And I even said no at one point because I was like, oh my God, what's happening? I was so out of it when I woke up. And a friend of mine that was there with us, he was like, yo, protege just asked you to be a part of a song with him <laughs> and you're telling him no, you better get in there and get it done. So I was really just focused on whatever it is that was going on for me at the time because I was living here by myself. I had to be paying my own bills. My mom was back home expecting me to come home with that degree. I really had a lot going on. So for me, the time that I wasn't immediately thrown into oh, being an artist and getting signed, I developed patience and, and just understanding that music business don't necessarily work like that. Because even after getting signed, I didn't immediately become the biggest thing. We still had to do a lot of work and a lot of development and all the jamming that I was doing and the karaoke's. I was eventually training my voice for it to be where it is at right now because I've never been on a choir or anything, never gotten any form of formal training. So everything kind of worked out. As you mentioned, these other women that was a part of this collective, let's call it, a lot of times there's a lot of competition with the women in the popular culture, right? In music, you hear whatever, Cardi B and Rihanna or Megan, The Stallion, whoever, beefing, going back and forth. You don't know how much is true and how much is just part of the game. It's just a vibe that's out there, and it doesn't seem to be something that you're interested in doing. Yeah, for sure, for sure, definitely. The thing about 
the women that are coming up now are the women that I'm familiar with and really close with in music. Savannah, Naomi Cowan, Jazzelise. We all understand what it is like to be where we all are at. We understand the work that it takes to get there. We've all had our own personal struggles with dealing with parents and and everything else. So it's kind of like everybody's just really happy for everybody and everybody wants everybody to all be there because then we'll all be there together. Everybody is just genuinely happy for everybody. I listened to, to Jazzelise's project ever since it was out. I have my two favorite songs on it. I'm walking around the house. I'm singing it. We will link up. We chat. We par. It's not even always about music with us because we're genuinely just really good friends with each other. So I feel like developing a relationship like that and also realizing that we are also each other's safe space in music, we can vent about stuff. I can go to a studio and it's not just all, all men who are usually so opinionated, you can't get your voice in. You know, with the whole movement right now with what's happening with so many women breaking at the same time and, and everybody having their own style and their own sound. Instead of being jealous or envious, you can be inspired. When I first saw Savannah perform, I was blown away. I'm like, okay, I need to start working on my vocals. I need to start delving deeper into actually learning how to sing. You know, when I saw Naomi, I just thought this girl's style is so cool. You know, like I met Jazzelise and immediately I was blown away the same way. So it's, everybody is working together to build everybody because as I said, we all want to be there wherever there is. We want to be there together because it's fun, it's comfortable. And I don't know, I just feel like the competitive environment is extremely toxic and music business is already a toxic space to work in. So why add to that? Do you find that in Kingston, giving its heritage of music, creativity is, is just so much part of the brand of Kingston and Jamaica and, and music? Uh, it's been part of people's lives probably now. Everybody that's alive today has probably heard some of that music, even if they've never been there. Is that like a special, unique thing to Kingston? I feel like there's music coming out of every wall behind every window that there's a community of musicians that work together and play together and just sort of live together. Is that accurate, do you think? Yeah, definitely. I feel like the thing about Kingston is that it's not that it's the only space in Jamaica where creativity and, and talent is, is being bred from, but it usually has the most at one time. So when it was Bob Marley and the Whalers with Peter Tosh and Bonnie Whaler and Studio One, all of these spaces were in Kingston. That's where everybody had to go and record. And that's where the music was breaking from, you know. Then came the Movados, the Vibes Cartel, Beanie Bounty, again, Kingstonians, even the dancehall culture with Bogle and all the other dancers coming out of Kingston. It has always just been that very vibrant spot for creativity and art. It's like the scene. When you watch a lot of the old movies, most of it usually is centered around Kingston. And I just feel like the whole energy from that has definitely continued through generations like if I go back home and I meet other creatives down by where I'm from they're like 
I know in a man from you leave and go Kingston, I know say that go bus in you know, a cause. You can't really bus from the country. But it's just that with Kingston, there's so many, it's just a very vibrant city to be in as an artist and as a creative. But trust me, there's definitely a lot going on. Like, like as you can see with Skilly Bang and Ritical and all those artists from Eastside, you know, from Bull Bay and St. Thomas with Popcorn, there's an uprising from that area also. In the country, there's like Montego Bay, there's a lot of artists from there that's also doing really well. But the thing too is that when the artists when they come up and they create and they, they begin to, to shine their light out in the world, they're all coming to Kingston. The creativity and the art is actually also usually moving and gathering in the space. And this new sound that you're a part of and that I identify and I feel like a lot of it is female-driven, that for a time reggae was kind of in a rut, I, I might say. The great old sounds was really what people were listening, and it was very hard for anybody new to break through, to compare with the greats of the past. But having this new spin on it where you embrace music, all music really, and and incorporate it as part of the reggae experience seems to be something that's very new. And maybe because it's women-driven, because to me that seems to be the other element that's new, that's going to make it break out again in a way that hasn't been since the good old days. Yeah, definitely. For sure, women being on the front line right now, leading exceptionally, if we should zone in and take a look, especially with what coffee has achieved in such a short period of time in our career, it definitely began to, one, shed a lot of light on Jamaican music in a much deeper realm. Like People are not just seeing... Oh, yeah, you know, that's a reggae artist from Jamaica. That's a dancehall artist from Jamaica. They're zoning in. They want labels want to come and, and sign artists. Producers from all around want to come. Different artists want to come to Jamaica and work with Jamaican writers. So it has definitely ignited a light again for Jamaican music and Jamaican culture. And then when you come in and you realize that, oh, it's not just coffee, there's like so many other cool talented, exceptional women down there doing their thing. It's a beautiful thing to see, seeing that women usually have always been the underdogs in, in Jamaica musical history. I think with the new sounds now, back again to the whole coffee thing, when toast became a thing, people didn't necessarily know what genre to put it under. You know, this doesn't really sound like a reggae song. It's not purely a dancehall song. What is it? And so I feel that kind of opened up people's taste in music from the whole rigid aspect of Jamaica's reggae and dancehall. But if you look at it, it's something that has been we've been working on for, for years now. When Protege and Chronics and Janine and Dre Island and all them began to do music, I personally could hear the heavy influence of hip-hop and rap in their music. You know, it's almost like they were rapping over reggae instrumentals. You know, mm -hmm. and Drake and others, yeah, yeah. I feel like people just got a bit more open right now to the sounds, which eventually gave a little bit more confidence to creatives who were not trying to do regular dancehall that were just in the gray area and wanted to be heard and seen. And it's a beautiful thing to experience. Yeah, and it's remember it's International Women's Day or month, right? So. It's a good right. subject to be talking about as well. Uh, your first single, Biggest Fan, in 2017, 
which was a tribute to your mother, I guess, right? Is that fair to say? Yes, definitely. And I know that was a complicated relationship. You mentioned earlier that you had to leave home. Your mother wasn't really into you performing, going in that direction. So given all of that, why would your first record be about her? Well, for that exact reason, you know, that was kind of like an open letter to my mom, to be honest, because moving to Kingston, I didn't tell her what I was doing. She was under the impression that I'm just going to school, coming home, going to work. I remember when I first moved, about like the first six months of me being here, she would call me every single day. There are times I'd be in the studio and had to step outside and pretend like I was at home in bed because I just didn't want her worrying or anything like that. So for me, it was like if I'm going to take on this music thing and become an artist, I was already blessed with the resources and a space and a mentor to create with. The next step is to just make a really, really great song. And I feel like the first song that the world should be introduced to Leela Ike it definitely should be a song where my mom was also being personally introduced to me as an artist. I wanted her to feel safe. I wanted her to feel proud. And I just wanted her to understand that with everything that she's done, I understand where it's coming from. I understand why she had to be overprotective and anything. Me not growing up with her dad, I really know why she was the way she was. And so this was kind of like a letter to say, you know, I got it. I got this. What <laughs> yeah. was her reaction? What happened is that I remember her calling me the first time she heard anything about the song. It was playing on the radio, but she hasn't heard it yet. I didn't send it to her. She was saying, oh, you know, everybody in the community is saying they hear that her daughter has a song. And how come she haven't heard it or anything? And I'm like, yeah, man, don't worry yourself. You soon hear it. Because I always wanted the first time her hearing the song shouldn't be me sending it to her. I wanted the experience of her hearing it on the radio. So I didn't send it to her or anything. And I remember the day when she heard it and she called me. The song was playing in the background. She's there screaming (laughs) and crying. And, you know, so it was was a very beautiful, emotional thing. Yeah, that worked out well, it sounds like. In the beginnings, you toured Europe, right? With Protégé, you'd perform on his show as part of his bill. Was that your first time leaving the country of uh, Jamaica at that time? Yeah, the first time I I left Jamaica was when I joined him on tour in London. I was there before, though. I kind of went on a trip and then we met up and that's the first time I ever touched stage. And yeah, it was the first time I was leaving Jamaica. So how was uh, your reaction, you know, starting to get an idea of what's going on London? And I know Switzerland, I mean, you did a European tour, you did some U.S., touring as well. So did that have an impact on you in terms of how you saw your future, whether creatively or just as a professional? Creatively, definitely. I feel like getting out into the world, coming out of Jamaica, seeing other places, seeing other people, because I'm definitely inspired by everything. I'm inspired by everything I see, feel, taste, touch, whatever it is. So experiencing different cultures and seeing different people go about their life in a different space, immediately the whole world just felt way much bigger than I thought it was. I'm walking up and down on a street where nobody knows who I am. I'm just chilling. Like people are just going about their lifestyle. It definitely impacted my creativity for sure. It created a kind of sonder vibe for me to look at life from. 
as it relates to my experience with being there and what I thought it would be, it was definitely different. I actually thought a tour bus was like way bigger. <laughs> Everybody like suddenly, hey, it's a little too close in here, right? <laughs> I'm like, how do they fit so much stuff in this? You know, the bunk bed experience. I want to say that's probably one of the best sleeps I've had. <laughs> when you're driving in that thing and you're sleeping, it's, it's really a lovely experience. But I also realized that being on tour is a lot more work than it is for fun and games. You know, it's like... Every other night, it's show after show. You wake up, you have the first half of the day, and then it's sound check time. Before you know it, you have to start getting ready. Before you know it, it's show. And I mean, I love performing and everything. I'm, I've, I've been very blessed to be able to do that around the world. I was just saying, you know, I really, I don't know why I thought it was, oh, I'm out here in Switzerland having a drink on the beach. <laughs> you know, then I will hit the stage. It's definitely not no. like that. So it definitely encouraged me to, okay, this stage after stage, each night performing, definitely need to work on my fitness, definitely need to work on singing techniques and everything. And did you have a chance to go out into the clubs and uh, see what that was like as well in these various places? In relation to performing or just in general? In general, like when you weren't like performing. I did. I did. Because usually after I perform, I usually go in the crowd and hang out with or merch person. And I would get to stand from behind the crowd and experience people experiencing the show. I was very nervous the first time that I had to perform in, I can't remember exactly where, but their main language wasn't English. And I'm like, how are these people going to un understand what I'm saying? Because my earliest songs, most of it, usually is in the Jamaican dialect because I write the way I speak, you know? So I was like, oh my God, they're not going to get what I'm saying. But it was such good vibes performing and everything. And it's a pretty interesting thing. Different than Jamaica, but interesting. Were you interested in new kinds of music that you might hear there or different kind of beats people were using there compared to what you were seeing or listening to? For sure, for sure. When I went to London, that was the first time I was experiencing grime music. And that kind of created my love for one of my favorite artists to this day, Dave Santon from London. Like I remember there was this song that was really big at the time. It was him and J-Hoss. And I was like, this guy is exceptional. And I started going deep into grime. And for like the whole time I'm back in Jamaica, Protégé was like, okay, are you about to become a grime artist? Because this is <laughs> all keep you at home. To, don't don't you know? let her out of the house. <laughs> <laughs> I definitely tapped into what was going on over there for sure. Now you came out with a remix of your single, Thy Will, featuring Skilly Bang, a very spiritual song. Does it only refer to God's power, thy will, or is there something more that you're trying to get across there? I haven't actually thought about it outside of that concept of God. But for me, it was like just observing a lot of things and even looking at my life personally and seeing just how things would change over time. And no matter what, no matter how I'd feel about something, I remember writing where I'm coming from and it was a whole back and forth with me and Protégé because I was like, this song is just not it. People are not going to get it. I remember having a conversation with him and he's like, why did you write the song? What were you feeling? You know, why did you sing that song? I sat with him and we spoke about it and he's like, okay, well, you know, I remember the first time you wrote the song. I remember how excited you were about it. I remember how emotional you got. 
it's going to do its thing. Maybe it's not going to be the biggest song in the world, but it is what it is and it is what you wanted it to be, you know? And so I think the whole idea behind Thy Will, especially growing up in a household where my mom was a very religious person. She really was into Christianity and was having to pray all the time. I feel like that aspect of divinity, I keep it in my music throughout in honor of her and also just for me personally, I'm a spiritual person. I may not say, okay, then I pray to Jesus or Buddha or Haile Selassie, but I do believe that there is a creator of all things. And no matter what we are going on with down here, what will be, will be. You know, and that's kind of the idea I wanted to express through that song while highlighting a lot of just negativity that was happening in the world. But all these songs that you mentioned, Where I'm Coming From, Forget Me, Thy Will, they're very personal songs. They're also general in the sense that you don't have to have had exactly your yeah. experience, but it's something everyone can relate to. So that seems to be a lane that you're carving out for yourself as well, to be able to write about personal things and make them general for everyone to be able to experience, which is a very powerful thing. It reminds me of, you know, let's go talk, you know, about Bob Marley for a minute, you know, the sort of the roots of reggae, yeah. where that was his huge power to be able to do that, to move people with his music, whether it's to action or to feel or to care or to be a human being. Is that how you kind of look at your mission as well as, as in your music? 100% for sure. Because for me, it's like, even if I should just look at how I create music, I'm not one to, okay, Leela, I can hear this rhythm, write a song. For me, it all starts from me feeling something. I'd be walking on the road and somebody says something and I was just like, wow, that's a extremely remarkable statement. And it brings me back to a moment that I had and then the whole song is kind of created around it. I hardly even write lyrics down physically. I'm more of a, I'm going to sing this song into perfection or sing it into where I want it to be. So definitely for me, it's deep, it's personal. I'm trying to go much deeper because in the same breath, it's like, I also have a problem with being completely open, which is why I write these songs and I don't go as deep. I go deep enough for people to feel and still be able to understand. For example, when I sang Life of a Queen in Odyssey Concrete Jungle in Where I'm Coming From, I could have gone so much deeper into why I would refer to where I'm at as a concrete jungle. I could have gone so much deeper into my experiences, a lot of really, really horrible stuff, you know, but I just decide I don't want to put negativity out there. I don't want to contribute to the negative word song. I would just like to encourage people that no matter what it is that you're going through, just remember that you're strong, you know? So for me, it's definitely a personal journey. I'm basically just writing my life story as I go along. Maybe there'll be other tracks that are about someone else's experience, but I try to keep it as real as possible because when I'm performing those songs, when it's time for me to sing it, I don't want it to be this imaginary story that I made up because I want to ensure that the energy that I'm able to deliver 
with when I'm delivering the songs is one that somebody who is listening or standing in the crowd, you don't feel like you just paid your money to come and see this superstar. You paid your money to come and experience something and feel like, okay, I'm not the only one in the world because if this great person is going through that and made it through it, then I can too, you know? That's a very important skill to have. I think of Lauren Hill or Sade, or even Billie Holiday, people who are able to transform their lives into a, a bigger story that moves so many more people. Are, are those people that I mentioned, do you feel connected to them in any way? For sure. Lauren Hill is my heart and soul in music. She's definitely my teacher as it relates to just being vulnerable and allowing the music to just become one with it and, and deliver to people the real. She's definitely somebody I grew up listening to, still listen to, and just in awe of her work. Billie Holiday, I, I feel like the power is in the voice with that particular artist. Just the sound that you get when you listen to that, when you listen to her music, it's like, wow, this is exceptional. So for sure, like, the, those are definitely people I, I look up to in music. And then with Lauren Hill, you know, there's also tragedy there, right, as well? She's yeah. had to stop singing. So much happened to her in her life. So it's a cautionary tale as well. Exactly. For sure. For sure. I always say I need her to write a book. <laughs> yeah, that would be fantastic. Before I'm, I'm done with music, I would love for her to write a book because not only musically, the amount of lives that she'll be able to change we're just coming forward and, and speaking about her experience. Not that she's obligated to, because within her music, you can hear a lot of the pain. You can hear a lot of what she has gone through if you really sit and think about it. Like, I remember listening to the song called Zion, and I just started crying. I'm like, I can't imagine what it would have been like to be so young, to be so talented, have the entire world just looking at you and expecting and expecting. And it's like, when you're that great, people, they just want more. They just feel like, okay, everything you do from this point forward is going to be judged along your accomplishments thus far. And, and I can imagine having a child and being in that situation and having to think, okay, what am I going to do with this unborn child within me? I'm pretty sure on the other end of it, there was personal issues going on with her baby father and everything. It was just something that broke me down as a woman, you know? Yeah. So for sure, you know, her life story and her music is definitely, I feel, one of the most special things that could ever happen within this lifetime for me personally. Yeah, and I could hear it in your voice when you sing. That's that's just me. Yeah, sure. To change direction here for a minute, reggae has always been identified with Rastafarianism, with cannabis as a sacrament. And at the same time, that has stigmatized reggae for people who associate reggae with the kind of stoner mentality that they may not really want to identify with, even if they like the music. So the question is, do you think the changing attitude towards cannabis as it's becoming recognized legally, internationally, have made it easier for reggae to reassert itself as a global music, political and social force? I'd like to think so, for sure. I think, I think it's actually some sort of the other way around, too. Like, people's whole energy and vibe towards marijuana right now is different. Like when I just moved to Kingston and 
I used to smoke. I stopped smoking um, about a year and a half now. But the people that I would see at these dispensaries and all of these spaces that are now created around, you know, commercializing marijuana, it's like the same people that when I was just coming up in music and I was just so excited about reggae and Rastafari. And, you know, you get caught in the whole, okay, this is what reggae is. You're supposed to be a Rasta and you're supposed to smoke weed until you really start doing your research and allowing yourself to feel. But the people that would turn up their nose at me being, what's this little girl doing with a spliff in her hand? It's the same people them I'm seeing with their weed pen and everything. (laughs) So I feel like both of them are kind of working for each other right now in, in the whole upliftment and, you know, the destigmatization, if that's a word, yeah. of both. So, yeah, for sure. Yeah, so we're waiting for the return of reggae and I'm waiting for your LP. What's the status of that now? Right now, I'm just coming up with ideas, going to studio, recording, bringing my musician friends here. Even, you know, today, I have a little jam session with my singers. So for me, it's like, it's just experiencing life right now with the pandemic. It's kind of wild. Some days for days on end, I just don't even want to hear music. And then sometimes I'm so inspired. I just want to sing. You know, I'm trying to kind of gauge the music away from singing about how low I'm feeling and, and everything. Because I feel like people need upliftment right now. I'm just kind of harvesting the ideas and bringing them into the studio and working them out. Don't know what the LP is going to be about just yet. I just know I'm just working with whatever comes to That sounds exciting. To not know, I think, is is an exciting place for an artist to be. True. Well, thank you very much, Leela Ike, for taking the time to speak with me today with the Light Culture Podcast. I really learned a lot speaking with you and look forward to hearing more of your music. Thanks so much. I enjoy this conversation for sure. Thanks for having me on your platform and, you know, supporting the music from everybody. You know, big up yourself and thanks for everything. All right. Peace. All right. Take care. You've been listening to Light Culture. You can find us at shopburb.com, Light Culture, or at Light Culture Podcast. Thanks again to Burb. You can follow them at shopburb on Instagram. And don't forget to subscribe to and review the show. If you would like to get in touch, reach out to me directly at David Reporting. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.